0: This Post Reports podcast is brought to you by Cleveland Clinic, ranked number one in heart care 25 years in a row. Learn more at clevelandclinic.org slash care.
1: From the newsroom of The Washington Post.
2: Hi, good afternoon. This is Tolu Olorunipa with The Washington Post. Hi, this is
1: Amy Britton calling from The Post.
2: This is Peter Jameson from The Washington Post. This is Post Reports.
1: I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, October 30th. Today, backlash to the controversial plan to prevent California wildfires. Plus, the ballooning national deficit and new rules for college athletes.
2: The biggest concern, obviously, in the northern part of the state is Kincaid. We've never had more resources in this space than we do today.
0: This is a fire that started last Wednesday in Sonoma County, California, north of San Francisco. More than 200,000 people have been evacuated. The fire has consumed 75,000 acres, and it's only about 15% contained at this point. It is now California's largest fire of this year, and luckily no one has died yet. There have been no confirmed deaths, but more than 120 structures have burned. So this is a very destructive and very dangerous fire. Doug McMillan reports
1: on corporate accountability for The Post. The cause of the fire has not been confirmed. But Doug says that investigators have an idea.
0: Investigators are currently looking at a transmission tower that malfunctioned near the site of the fire's ignition that belonged to Pacific Gas and Electric, the largest utility provider in California. It says it's trying to limit the potential for fires caused by its wires down on trees and fires caused by its equipment by essentially shutting off the power. Up to 2 million people were affected in the largest blackout over the weekend, and uh, our colleagues out in San Francisco were visiting with some of these people. It gets down to 40s here, and it gets really cold, especially for my 18-month-old. My name is Tyler Radak. I'm 29 years old. I live in Moraga, California, and I'm a nurse. And they're essentially spending nights huddled around a gas fireplace to stay warm. You know, they have to wrap the baby in two layers of fleece. They are heating water and grilling food using a propane barbecue outside. Food is a big issue because we don't have any power. So you have to be careful when you open the fridge and freezer. And there's never really a deadline that you're given initially for when the power outages will end.
1: We're talking about huge swaths of people in California that have been affected by these blackouts. And it does seem like a pretty ham-handed approach to trying to prevent fires.
0: Yeah, it's really unprecedented. No American company has ever just decided that we're going to shut off the power to try to prevent forest fires quite at this scale before. But PG&E is in a really bad situation. They currently owe billions of dollars to previous victims— of wildfires that they can't afford to pay out at this point. They have a stock that's shrinking and potentially going to go to zero uh, in the near future because investors don't see a positive future for this company and nobody wants to take a risk of owning this company. And they're looking at some of the worst fire conditions that California has ever seen. They're having Winds above 80 miles per hour. These are hurricane-like winds.
1: And this is probably only going to get worse because of climate change.
0: Yes, only getting worse because of climate change. And PG&E sees the only solution to limiting the potential damage as just shutting down the infrastructure altogether.
1: But isn't there another option? It feels like this can't be the only option.
0: That's what I was wondering. Ironically, this is the place where, you know, you would want to see technological innovation address this problem. PG&E says it's doing everything that it needs to do to protect the safety of Californians in the face of growing threat of fire that's unpredictable. The solution to this problem looks like it may be you know, putting wires underground. That takes billions of dollars, many years, and, it, and, and in some cases it will take technological innovators. So, And if this is a
1: utility that is currently facing bankruptcy... I can imagine that finding billions of dollars to be able to do those kinds of big infrastructure projects doesn't seem like a short-term possibility.
0: They're not in a position to invest in that kind of thing. And right now, a lot of people are mad at them for not doing this 10 years ago, that they think that we're in the position now because this utility didn't take the steps that they needed to take last decade. There aren't that many good ideas right now. And to put a fine point on that, Governor Newsom solicited Warren Buffett who come and take over the company. Warren Buffett has n- has not <laughs> expressed any interest in coming to take over PG&E, but I think that illustrates how desperate the situation is where governor of California is just asking a billionaire to come and bail them out.
1: So if Warren Buffett decides that he doesn't want to do that, then then what's going to happen?
0: The analyst I talked to said that there's increasing likelihood that the government may have to take over PG&E, that you might have to structure it as a municipalization of this utility company it would it would go towards something like how the government operates the water supply and, and water in California. There are a lot of downsides to that. For one, <laughs> Governor Newsom isn't too happy with PGE right now and I think he benefits politically from the fact that he can blame PG&E. This is not the new normal. And with respect to the CEO of PG&E, this is not a 10 year process. Let me reject that outright. As a governor, you know, previously he was in Governor Jerry Brown's administration. and He watched as PG&E did not improve its infrastructure, did not set itself up to prevent these kinds of situations from happening. So I think that there's some of the blame falls on state of California here and potentially they have to be part of the solution. The government taking over the largest utility in California poses some serious risks, which are, you know, if there are large fires in the future sparked by PG&E, it's the government's responsibility, then you have some serious questions around how you're gonna pay those out. It could destroy California's budget. This is, you know, tens of billions of dollars in liabilities that we're talking about. And California, you know, that, that's a significant chunk of the state's budget. So, you know, this is going to fall potentially on the taxpayers of California responsibility when, you know, people say that that it's, you know, part of California's fault why we got in this mess.
1: So it feels like there are no good options here.
0: It's a lose-lose situation.
1: Doug, thank you so much. Thank you. Doug McMillan reports on corporate accountability for The Post. what did the Treasury Department announce on Friday?
2: Well, it was the big announcement that everyone's been waiting for, how much of a deficit the United States run in fiscal year 2019. And the Treasury announced on Friday that the United States had a $984 billion deficit in fiscal 2019. Nearly a trillion dollars. America is back in trillion-dollar deficits.
1: Heather Long is an economics reporter for The Post.
2: This is an unprecedented increase during good economic times. Traditionally, when the economy is doing well, if we're booming as much as the president says, we should be taking in a lot more tax dollars from corporations and from individuals who are working again. And that is just not happening. And on top of that, both the president and Republicans and Democrats in Congress just keep edging up the spending. And so we are back in a situation situation where the government is spending basically a trillion dollars more than they're bringing in in revenue. And it doesn't mean the world's going to end tomorrow, but there's legitimate concern that you just can't keep doing this forever. And isn't this something that President Trump
1: talked about a lot on the campaign trail, the fact that the deficit was so big, that Democrats were overspending, and that he, as a Republican, would be able to bring things more in conservative fiscal lines?
2: That's right. Uh, Republicans have traditionally been the ones who squawk the most about rising debt. The, The way I look
0: at this is at the bottom line, what we ought to do is something that is good for the deficit, meaning are we reducing the deficit or not?
3: It is time to deal with America's problems. How can you raise the debt limit and do nothing about the underlying problem? George, we've spent
1: more than what we brought in for 55 of the last 60 years. This year, the federal government We'll have more revenue than any year in the history of our country, and yet we're still going to have a nearly $700 billion budget deficit.
2: President Trump, when he was campaigning in 2016, made this eye-popping statement that if he were elected, he would totally wipe out the U.S. federal debt within eight years.
0: You say you want a balanced budget. You actually told me once it's immoral to steal from our kids.
3: I do want to balance budget. We could do it a lot quicker. I mean, I've heard people say we'll balance the budget within 20 years. I'm saying 20 years. What are you talking about?
2: You know, he certainly was trying to signal to Republicans, I care about the deficit. I'm going to be fiscally responsible. I'm going to get the budget on track and shrink these deficits when, in fact, it's up 50 percent under his, his tenure so far. So it's certainly just climbing year after year.
1: And has President Trump or the White House said anything about this? And for these Republicans who would previously have been very excited about the idea of eliminating the debt, are they saying anything about the fact that this Promise has not panned out?
2: It's gone a lot more quiet on the deficit issues among Republicans since Trump has taken office. A number of people have pointed out that hypocrisy of Republicans caring about controlling the deficit and bringing down the debt when Democrats tend to be in the White House and then they go a little bit quieter when Republicans are in charge. I think, you know, what's particularly hurting President Trump is not only did he promise to eliminate the debt during his presidency, he and many of his colleagues were out there selling the tax cuts back in the end of 2017 by arguing that, hey, we're going to reduce taxes for individuals and corporations, and that's going to generate more revenue from the Treasury. And again, economists across the political spectrum said (laughs) balderdash. That's not how it works. That's not going to happen. And we are certainly seeing that in the numbers where revenue is barely up. And again, And that's very different from – normally you'd see a big boost in revenue in a good economic year.
1: So tell me more about exactly how the tax cuts have resulted in such a dramatic increase in the deficit.
2: The tax cuts that the Republicans and President Trump pass certainly are not helping the situation. They were enacted at the end of 2017. They took effect January 1st of 2018. It was the largest corporate tax cut in U.S. history and also a pretty substantial tax cut for most Americans as well. And basically it's costing $200 billion a year. And that is certainly helping to drive these deficits higher under President Trump, no doubt about it. But let's not forget spending has also gone up under President Trump. Spending on what? President Trump likes to talk about how he's boosted funding for the military and defense programs. That is certainly true. But in order to get that passed, Democrats in Congress insisted that funding for a bunch of domestic programs also increase. So basically, everybody in Washington shook hands and said, let's spend more. It's one of the few things they agree on.
1: So what have we heard from Democrats on this? Because I think that it's kind of an awkward position for them that, yes, President Trump is being what someone would call hypocritical. But at the same time, a lot of Democratic candidates for president are talking about big ideas and big programs that would probably also increase the national deficit.
2: Democrats are not going after President Trump over the rising deficits, at least not among the 2020 candidates. And the very simple explanation why is almost all of them want to spend more money. You know, you can debate how much more the deficit would go up under different candidates, but... Almost all of them have increases in domestic spending in a way that's probably going to drive higher deficits. So they've been pretty quiet on this issue. Although many will point out that historically the deficit has gone down under a number of recent Democratic presidents.
1: If the deficit continues to grow either under President Trump or under a Democratic president that might bring in a whole set of new social services that need to be paid
2: for, What are the long-term implications of that? Well, we're just in uncharted territory in the sense that there could come a time when the United States has so much debt that basically people around the world start to question whether we're ever going to pay it back. And if that happens, boom, overnight— there could be a crisis. At the moment, the United States can borrow money for very low rates, historically speaking. You know, the yield on the ten-year government bond is, you know, in the low two percent. This is nothing. This is peanuts to borrow right now. And the concern is, do you get to a situation where people around the world, who've been buying this debt, both in the United States and China, you know, in India, in, all, all around the world, say? Uh, we don't believe you're going to repay, and suddenly they're demanding really high rates. Like if you look at countries that typically can't pay, like in Argentina, you know, you're talking about like fifteen, twenty percent rates. And that would be a huge problem for the United States. Like, overnight, funding dries up. We can't support all these programs. The real question is, when does this happen? And we've written about the deficit a lot at the Washington Post, both under President Obama and under President Trump. And we get a lot of emails from people like, why are you making this out like it's a horrible problem? You know, the United States can borrow debt really cheaply right now. Why why, why wouldn't we do that to fund programs? And again, it's not a problem until it is. When it is, it's sort of a potentially irreversible problem that suddenly stops just about everything overnight.
1: Heather Long is an economics reporter for The Post. now, one more thing. How student-athletes could start to make money from playing college sports.
3: The bedrock principle of college sports in the United States uh, since the 1950s has been a concept called amateurism. And what it means is that athletes, who the NCAA views as student-athletes, are student-first and athletes-second. My name is Ben Strauss. I cover sports media and sports business for The Washington Post. And I am the co-author of Indentured, the inside story of the rebellion against the NCAA and according to the NCAA this is what makes college sports college sports what makes you tune in to Alabama playing Auburn is that these are students and not professionals and they've gone to great lengths over the last 70 years to ensure that this is the system that continues they've policed schools and athletes they've fought uh, tooth and nail in court against any incremental changes over the years you know that would increase benefits to athletes So what the NCAA said yesterday that they are willing to consider or that they are going to instruct working groups to consider how they might allow athletes to profit from their name, their image and their likeness is a huge departure from the way the NCAA has talked for really 70 years. So basically for the last 10 years there have been a number of challenges to to the college sports establishment. There have been lawsuits, a football team tried to unionize, and essentially it's in response to the huge amounts of money that are now flowing through college sports. This is a 10 billion dollar industry. You have coaches that are making 10 million dollar salaries. And so, you know, the optics as well as the reality of college athletes who are driving this business, not seeing any of the money, begins to look a little absurd. But the NCAA has done a really good job of beating back these attacks. And so very recently, California passed a bill that would go into effect in 2023 that would allow athletes to you know, sell their images, you know, do endorsement deals, partake in this economy that is you know, proven to be you know, very uh, lucrative for coaches, administrators, schools. A number of uh, states followed suit, you know, introducing similar legislation. There's discussion of uh, federal law. And so that is the impetus behind uh, what the NCA is doing. It's not a proactive statement. This is uh, very reactive to what's happening around the country. Now, the second part of that is what are they actually saying beyond this statement that they are going to consider this and that's pretty amorphous there is nothing actionable that they said yesterday there are a lot of caveats in what they said and so what this means tangibly going forward i think remains to be seen you could have athletes doing endorsement deals for Coca-Cola, for Nike, for local car dealerships, for local businesses, athletes getting compensated for a, a video game for college football or college basketball. Now, whether the NCAA and uh, universities are going to go that far down the road, you know, I think is still a question because in this statement, you had, you know, words like consistent with. Uh, The collegiate model, you had words like benefits instead of compensation. And so I I think what's important to note is the NCAA really wants to maintain control of this system. This is not a statement or or not an effort to sort of open the door to athletes, you know, being able to pursue their own uh, market value in a lot of ways.
1: Ben Strauss covers the business of sports for The Post. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. If you're on Twitter, follow me at Martine Powers for posts about the -the behind-the-scenes happenings at Post Reports and around the Washington Post newsroom. Our colleague, Dave Jorgensen, has been making a series of TikToks featuring real-life presidential candidates. They are very funny. I'll be sharing a thread of those videos on Twitter today, so you can check it out. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from the Washington Post.